Hello, and welcome to San of the Moment. I'm your host, Pat Cleaver, and this is the bi-weekly show featuring conversations with musicians about jazz, music, and more. Come back every second Monday to hear new episodes and subscribe in iTunes or Podbean or Stitcher or just add the show to an RSS feed if you would like to receive automatic downloads as soon as the new episodes come out. For more information, detailed show notes and links, you can visit soundofthemoment.com. And as always, if you feel like supporting the show, the best way to do that at the moment is still to go to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, wherever it is that you listen to this and leave a favorable review or rating. That is really very helpful to me. You can follow me on Twitter at Pat Cleaver and you can also go to Facebook and like the Sound of the Moment page. This is episode number 12 for 26th of March 2018. My guest is the South African guitarist Fuma Levine, and he was passing through Amsterdam this month, and I got a chance to meet up with him, and um, we talked about his latest record, which is called Life and Death on the Other Side of the Dream. And... um, I thought this was a particularly fun conversation and hopefully you're going to agree with that. Um, Before we get to it though, here is some music from Ruma. This piece is called Hashtag. music from Vuma Levine, guitarist, um, who is my guest today. Thanks for coming on the show, Vuma. Yeah, thanks for having me, Pat. Um, I've been I've been hoping we could do this for quite a while now. Yeah. Um, I have to say, since I started the show, you've been one of the people that I had in mind um, who is um, is quite an interesting figure and, and obviously has quite a few things to say about their music. So um, I'm very happy that you're around to do this, first of all, and... Um, yeah, that you're back in town for a little while. Um, maybe we can start with a bit of an introduction. Could you tell folks a bit about who you are, where you come from? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, first of all, thanks, thanks for the kind words and thanks for inviting me. It's it's super super nice to be on the show. I'm I'm an avid listener, as I was telling you earlier. <laughs> yeah, so. I think you're I think you're probably the first guest on this show who has listened to every episode before coming on. It's yeah, a bit of pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> No, no pressure, no pressure. Um, yeah, so it's really nice to be here and thanks for that. And um, <clears throat> yeah, I, my name is Vuma Levine. I'm a guitar player from South Africa, Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
Yeah, I studied first in in Pretoria in South Africa for three years and then I came to the Netherlands to do a bachelor's and a master's at the Conservatorium in Amsterdam and then I lived here for a year and a half. So, And now I'm back in South Africa, I teach at the conservatory attached to the University of Witwatersrand there, so yeah. Yeah, um, so you... There's been a couple of um, records as a band leader and we might discuss um, both or like well, all of your various output, but um, the new record and what people just heard is Life and Death on the Other Side of the Dream, right? Yes. Um, well, first of all, what the title is obviously very um, striking. What What is... That's really a super cliched question, but <laughs> <laughs> what is uh, what is behind... What's the story behind that? Well, the story behind it is that the music came as a result of, I guess, the last three years of me living in Amsterdam and the last three years of me living a particular dream that I'd had my whole life, which was the dream of moving overseas, participating in competitions, doing very well at school, um, being involved in a scene somewhere overseas. And me equating the achievement of that dream with becoming whole as a person. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of that process, realizing that those things didn't make me feel any more whole than I did before. <laughs> um, on the contrary, I felt emptier because I assumed that I would feel complete and I would feel um, <clears throat> fulfilled and happy and secure in myself and all of these things. And that was really not the case. I was unchanged. I was the exact same person. Um, so it was a reflection on the the nature of dreams, the purpose they serve in our mm -hmm. lives as this sort of ideal imagined future um, and the limitation and the violence of that purpose that um, once you sort of cross over um, from beyond that dream, you realize that it, it doesn't necessarily give you those things. Life is a lot more complicated than that. Um, and uh, so... That was the sort of personal basis of the album. And then that metaphor extended outward into South African society at large yeah. and the post-apartheid project. So um, in the case of post-apartheid South Africa, we assume that once the oppressor, white minority rule had been dealt with, our country would be perfect in a way. Mm -hmm. all, we assume that all of our problems could be equated to white minority rule or yeah. blamed on white minority rule. And right after the fall of apartheid, there was this wave of optimism, um, most uh, markedly characterized by sort of rainbow nation ideology. Yeah. Um, and as soon as, of course, once we had lived this rainbow nation experience for a number of years, all the contradictions, all the inconsistencies of South African society became apparent to us and it became apparent that this dream that we had had didn't necessarily solve uh, the deeply entrenched problems that had been created through 400 years of colonialism. So it basically, it's an album title that operates on two levels, on a very personal level, but a personal level that resonates with a broader um, attempt to understand and define the post-apartheid South African self. Yeah, right. And the, so um, I take it that the album is, like there's a narrative thread to it somehow because you go from you literally have the i am an african speech um absolutely Thabo and becky yeah um which is probably the most um iconic uh form of like hope post-apartheid hope that there was um and then there's yeah there's there's various um moments of speech how much of, how like how much is the spoken word the spoken word has been part of your work for a while now um yeah. what yeah, what is your relation to that somehow? Like the to the spoken word or to the speech itself? Um, I suppose both, but um, because obviously there's there's also um, there's a bunch of other voices and stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So my relationship to spoken word in general has to do with being more interested in te or being very interested in texture and sound as a as an entity unto itself. And becoming increasingly interested in that. Um, and this is principally because 
First of all, while I'm a capable guitarist, I don't consider myself an outstanding guitar player. <laughs> and there's all sorts of other aspects of music that I believe I have a lot more strength in um, and that appeal to me more than being a burning virtuosic guitar player. Yeah. Um, and all sorts of other things I, I look out for now, especially in music, beyond the individual skills of instrumentalists. So that's the first thing. Um, and the second thing is that a lot of the music that I grew up listening to, first when I was very young, music like Pink Floyd, um, <clears throat> and then later on music like Radiohead, there's um, a lot of use of sound design and texture and exploration of sound design and texture. And to me, it always um, was an interesting balance to whatever what to what whatever was happening instrumentally you would have this sort of instrumental component and then to balance that out in a way both sonically but also emotionally there were these elements of texture and sound design that were very very appealing to me um, and so that's how I came to use those elements in my own music it was just purely an aesthetic thing uh, that I found to be very inspiring and interesting and actually the the musicians that I listen to now and the popular musicians that I listen to now make extensive use of sound um, and it's less about the complexity of chord progressions or solos or anything like that mm -hmm. and more about the type of sounds they use in their compositions, um, effects, stuff like texture. And so, yeah, that's kind of where the voices generally from an aesthetic standpoint came from and the, the actual content of the voices is very much inspired by um, my reading of various aspects of cultural theory to do with race and power and privilege and nation especially and how all those things um, intersect um, when trying to look at African identity in general in the global age and South African identity in general in a global age. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, the your work has obviously taken on a very political uh, bent, and um, and that seems quite interesting to me because uh, it's a similar thing that we've maybe been doing with Tin Man, which is that we've decided, and I think quite a few musicians might have decided this recently, which is that um, jazz historically has been a very political art form, and yet it seems like that has been somewhat lost in recent years. Um so yeah, I, I sort of wonder what your relationship to that idea is, like the idea of bringing politics back into... Um, yeah, yeah. I have a very ambivalent relationship to that. And the reason why my relationship is ambivalent is, first of all, because I agree with you that it's a very important and I like musicians who do that as well. And a lot of the guys that I listen to or that I've been into do that. And not necessarily in music, but especially in literature, the authors that I enjoy reading like um, Zadie Smith and Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, these are all people who in their work somehow you get some sense of them dealing with issues of gender and race and mm -hmm. nation. Um, <clears throat> so I definitely value people who bring aspects of that into their art. But on the other hand, there's always this tendency then to expand, especially as black musicians, to expend 80% of our energy trying to answer political questions and only 20% of our energy trying to make music. <laughs> yeah. um, so in the case of black music musicians in particular, it becomes difficult to simply be a musician mm -hmm. um, because your acts are always political from the onset because you're black. Mm. So for me, there's this ambivalent relationship with it. It would be nice to live in a post-racial world where you can simply be a musician and regardless of whether you're black or white, whatever, you're just creating art on the one hand. But on the other hand, of course, we don't live in a post-racial world. So all acts of cultural production by black people are inherently political. They have to be, and there's various degrees of that, whether it's witting or unwitting. So yeah, that's, I guess I feel it's important. But on the other hand, we should try to be motivated to create work that looks beyond that as well at some point. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, and... Um I mean, maybe this relates more to your previous album, which yeah. was the the spectacle of another. Absolutely, um, yeah. Like that seems like thematically, there's a very clear idea, which is the sort of Western gaze on what um, African music is somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel like that's that's those are conversations that we've had in the past already. Absolutely, um, yeah. Um, concerning the idea of 
the caricature of um, both like the African musician and African culture. And it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, um, this somewhat dates when we're recording this, but today I think National Geographic came out as claiming that historically they've been a very racist uh, publication. Right. <laughs> um, and it's it's kind of fascinating that they're only just coming around to realizing that or to admitting it, um, I suppose. Yeah. But, um, yeah, this is sort of very vague, um, vague topic, I suppose. The, the idea of, um, like, you're, you're integrating certain elements of African music in, in your, um, like jazz playing and stuff. And yet trying to stay away from this, like somewhat caricatured idea of what the African musician is, right? Yeah. It's, well, two things. First of all, the reason why I developed this ambivalent position to political art by black people was as a result of the work that I did on my first album, because that was explicitly a political project. And for the second album, I really wanted to move away from that. And that was actually largely motivated by reading a lot of work by Zadie Smith. Um, And she also underwent this process of being overtly political with Mm -hmm. her first couple of novels, White Teeth on Beauty. And her latest novel, I think Swing Time is her latest one, I'm not sure. I think it is, yeah. uh, There are political undertones. There's a thread of that throughout all of her work. But to me, it seems far more to be a sort of organic reflection on the nature of friendships and stuff like this, um, female friendship in particular. Um, and Northwest, she characterizes as a black existentialist novel. So she's really trying to move more towards uh, answering questions of making meaning for oneself in a post-political world rather than thinking politically. Um, so... And increasingly, I felt burdened by the weight of all this cultural theory. Uh, I felt like it was almost subverting my own personal experiences because all of my personal experiences were being viewed through the lens of all this cultural theory. Mm -hmm. And that's in this new album, I really wanted it to be a black existentialist statement. So a statement of how to make meaning for yourself in the absence of dreams, which are there to provide meaning, basically. So... Um, that's the one thing. Um, and then the other thing is, um, yeah, I mean, about the the combination of African and supposedly non-African influences, it is always a sort of strange contradiction because on the one hand, there are deeply entrenched historical traditions in Africa. There's no Mm. doubt about that, just as there are everywhere else in the world. Um, But on the other hand, in a global age, there's all sorts of new African subjects who still view themselves as completely geographically located in Africa, in South Africa in particular, but whose traditions have more to do with what you would see someone walking around in, I don't know, some business district in Amsterdam or Mm -hmm. in New York, a very globalized sense of self in a way. Um, So I'm very interested in trying to negotiate that sort of contradiction in a way, the contradiction between something that is nationalism as primordially determined where you're from a place, you're born in that place, you have all these traditions from this place versus the sort of increasingly globalized character of the individual. Yeah, because it it seems to me like um, listening to the record, obviously there are elements of um, what... for lack of a better word, are seem traditionally African somehow in both the rhythms and the textures and things like that. Right. Um, and at the same time, you constantly quote Radiohead and yes. I don't know Portishead and Absolutely, these kinds of yeah. bands that yeah. that clearly are a really strong influence on you, and I suppose are a really strong influence on most people of our generation. Yeah. Um, so how much of the like, I suppose the concept of personal identity is quite complicated there because on yeah. the, like your your personal identity, certain aspects of it are not that much different from mine, for example. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then the, I suppose there's a certain amount of pressure put on you to explore the aspects that are not similar yeah. to mine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And therefore not necessarily being very true to yourself, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I would say that the whole thing is the project of trying to negotiate identity. That's That's kind of why... 
that's why most people compose in the first place. And if you're a black South African who's had the history that I've had, it just takes on a very, very particular character. Um, what it means is I'm from South Africa, so there's absolutely no doubt, regardless of the multiple inferiority complexes I inherited about our African culture from the colonial order, mm-hmm. those things form a part of me, especially seeing as my mom is Swazi and black. Yeah. And I remember going to funerals as a child and hearing traditional Swazi songs being sung at those funerals or living in my grandmother's house in Swaziland and hearing choral music played on the radio that she would listen to every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and those things being in my bones from a very, very young age. And yeah. the place, more importantly, the location, Swaziland, being a massive, massive part of who I am. But then on the other hand, living in the sort of upper middle class neighborhoods and suburbs of Johannesburg, which were at the time predominantly white and going to a school which was mixed, but which was very Eurocentric in character. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a very complex story and that complexity manifests itself, I hope, in, in the music that I make, or I try to use the music to negotiate that complex history. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, I wonder how much, um, obviously you are, you're very much into the, the idea of like research. I wonder how much research goes into, Um, the integration of all these different things and how much of it is just a natural process somehow because I mean you've you've obviously studied you study musicology right for a while I did for Um, a while yeah and um, so there's a lot of some like kind of a um, academic approach I suppose there but it doesn't seem to me like you necessarily want to embrace that Um, yeah again I have a very mixed relationship with that I think it adds a lot of value to the process to read a lot, but also to transcribe a lot and to really thoroughly know what material you want to bring to the party. But that ultimately the most successful works will be those in which you let go of all of, or you allow that stuff to flow through you in a very natural way. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. Because there have been times when I very... When I finished writing Life and Death on the Other Side of the Dream, I wanted to write new music. Uh, And for about six months, I tried, and all the music was really bad. It was (laughs) technically very well put together, but it did nothing, zero, to me when Mm. I listened to it. Zero. Um, And the reason for that I put down to is the fact that I was too consciously trying to use the transcriptions and the cultural theory and the technical devices Mm. rather than using the sort of organic emotional thing as a point of departure. And then all of that other stuff is a way of directing that organic thing. Yeah. But is that something that you can practice? I mean, like transforming that that's always like the, the idea. I mean, I think as jazz musicians, we have that thing, right. (laughs) Of going from, listening to a solo like historically and then transcribing that solo and being able to technically play it from a page yeah, yeah. to then transcending that into this is actually part of my identity and part of my like personal expression and, and, yeah. and instincts, right? Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, one of the things that my guitar teacher said of me at my final exams was uh, um, that I'm a control freak. So, and... Um, I very quickly, I'm increasingly realizing that that personality trait is very, very unhelpful when you're trying to create something that that is organic and that resonates with you emotionally. Because you can't, of course, when you have a good idea, you this there is some degree to which you can control the outcome of that idea, but you also have to let go and kind of trust yourself and trust the process and trust that it's going to be. It sounds very mystical in a way. Yeah. And <laughs> I really hate this sort of esoteric way of speaking and thinking. But unfortunately, or fortunately, because it's also beautiful, it is a little bit like that. You kind of, for me anyway, some people are work in a very different way. But for me... I just realized, especially with these new sets of compositions that I've composed for upcoming album that we're going to record in October, that the only way that I could arrive at those songs was by 
first of all, leaving alone the compositional process for a long time and just living. Mm-hmm. Um, so practicing standards and playing a lot of standards and hanging with my friends and um, yeah, stuff like that. And then coming back to the compositional process. And then when I was actually involved in the act of comp- composing, knowing when to stop and mm-hmm. when to say, okay, right now, it's gotten to a point where there's a dead end and I just have to wait and believe that it's going to work itself out. And if it doesn't, another good idea will come and that idea will work itself out. So there is this sort of weird mystical thing about it where, of course, you have to work hard and you have to be systematic and thorough. But on the other hand, you also have to realize that you can't actually control it. There's only so much you can control about the process. Yeah, I suppose that it has to do with the very nature of improvisation and um, and it's something that we all sort of struggle with, I suppose. I mean, I'm interested in what the actual, um, like from a practical standpoint, what does your compositional process look like? Because it seems to me like you, I mean, knowing you from, from a few years ago back in your school days, um, you had a very sort of systematic approach to the, like your practicing regime and stuff. And it sounds like there might have, you might have attempted a similar approach to composing. Um, is that the case? Like how? Yeah, it's the case with both my practicing and composing. Um, uh, basically, it, it always starts with some basic either melodic, rhythmic or harmonic idea mm-hmm. and then writing a whole bunch of variations on that idea. And whichever variation moves me, I latch on to, try and develop that in an organic way. When I hit a dead end, writing variations, mm. find a new thing. And so it's this sort of interplay between using, uh, I guess, compositional theory, if you want to use <laughs> <Yeah>. grand <laughs> terminology, and very uh, intuitive way of composing as well. And also, I'm a terrible piano player. <laughs> and... I don't compose on guitar either. I compose with Sibelius. Okay. Um, my compositional process... Sibelius is the notation program that it, musicians it, use for those that don't yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's really weird because when I first started composing, I used to only compose with Fruity Loops. And <laughs> Yeah, okay. So for me, I really recognize this year that I am really basically like an unschooled musician who happened to go to a conservatory. So I kind of <laughs> understand things. But my process is really the same as... 14 year old working in a in their bedroom somewhere with fruity loops putting a note down and seeing what it sounds like or beat down and seeing what it sounds like it's it's really with Sibelius and listening and writing variations then listening and then no piano no guitar yeah but then that that seems to me like then it's a it's both systematic and also very kind of instinctual if you're just yeah. creating a thing and then seeing what it's like. I mean, Fruity Loops was, I guess, um, pre-Garage Band days. <laughs> um, people would experiment with that stuff. Also, a lot of non-musicians, I think, experimented yeah, with yeah, that for yeah, a long time. Um, just making stuff and seeing what it's like. It's that, just the idea of just making a thing, I suppose. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so... I'm sure there's a lot there's a lot more on the topic there's I mean so many things we can talk about but um I am interested in um discussing your bandmates a bit um oh. they've all well all they most of them have already been either featured on this podcast as guests or have um been mentioned or have been heard on various uh, recordings that have yeah. been played on this podcast so um yeah, maybe if you want to talk about them each as individuals and also why the choice of this specific lineup um, yeah. playing as a quintet. Yeah. So the band is Marco Zenini on bass, uh, yeah. Jeroen Butterink on drums, uh, Xavi Torres Vicente on piano, and Bernard Van Rossum on saxophone. And <clears throat> in the case of Jeroen and Marco, the first jam session that I had at the conservatory was with them. And mm-hmm. since then, I've started out as a trio with them. Then we expanded it to a quartet and then a quintet with various people from the conservatory. I met Bernard when I was in, I guess, third year at the conservatory. Um, and we had a jam session with Marco and Jeroen, and we really liked the way that he played. Mm. Um, and Xavi was the, le- the last addition to the band, and... 
we were playing with another pianist who couldn't make the gig and yeah. Xavi played the gig and we really enjoyed what he did with the music. Um, and so I asked him to be a permanent member of the band. Um, and yeah, I mean, first of all, for me, it's always super important to play with musicians that are better than you. Like, because for me, at least it really makes me work harder than I would. Mm -hmm. uh, and second of all, it's very inspiring to listen to them. And third of all, it makes the music sound really, really good. <laughs> um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is I really know how all of them play because I've been playing with them for so long. So when I write something, it's always kind of with their sound in mind. Yeah. And I've noticed when I've, um, for instance, booked another sax player, mm. um, of course it still works and it still works well, but it's it's not the sound that I have in my head. Um, yeah. And the same goes for the other guys. So, of course, now that I've been living in South Africa, I recognize that I have to be more flexible about these things. Mm -hmm. But when I was living in the Netherlands before I moved back, it was really every time I had a gig, I had to have those guys on the gig just because of how fundamental they were to the sound that I imagined in my head. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I compose for all of them individually and... I've known them for a long time and I'm really, really happy that they are willing to play my music. A lot of the time my charts are very poorly written, as you will no doubt know. <laughs> I've had to sight read your music at times, yeah. Um, uh, but they do it and they do a really fantastic job and it's always a pleasure to play with them. Yeah, and I take it that's something that's going to continue, like um, despite your um, geographical um, differences now. Um, be it, I mean, even if you were still based in Amsterdam, I think quite, it's quite complicated now, what with Marco having moved back to Rome. Yeah. Um, we already discussed that with Christian Pabst, who was on the show not yeah. so long ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so you, um, you've been playing this music both here in the Netherlands, throughout Europe, I suppose, and, and back in South Africa. Yes. Um, do you feel like there's a notable difference in the way the music's being received? Um, from one place to the other? Uh, yeah, the way it's been received, it's been very positively received both here and in South Africa. Um, I think in South Africa, it's been really, really positively received. Mm -hmm. A lot of excitement whenever we play concerts there. Um, but the same can be said of the Netherlands. I think in South Africa, not to play into the cliche, the audiences are rather rowdy when they're into something so <laughs> okay. it's they're into it but in a very particular way um but yeah it's been very well received on both fronts yeah do you think like um i suppose this is a this is a different question but a parallel question um how do you feel your bandmates relate to all of the sort of thematic content of your music is it something that they need to understand and have digested or or is it something that they have become exposed to through playing this music how yeah that's a good question uh, i played this music with south african musicians and what i noticed is the sections that reference traditional south african music sounded completely different mm -hmm. than when i played them with european musicians with the guys from the quintet. Yeah. Um, so I write everything out, bass line, piano chord, everything, drum beat. And so when I played with the guys from here, they'll read what I've written out. Mm -hmm. But when I played with the guys from South Africa, they'll read it and then realize, oh, it's that Guma thing and use their knowledge of the tradition to play the chart. Yeah. And it sounds completely different, of course. Um, those sections to me sound more like what I would imagine a Guma or Marabi or uh, these are various traditional South African musics, yeah. what I'd imagine those sections to sound like. Whereas when I play them with uh, the guys from here, they still sound great, but they just sound more like, I guess, how I listen to them on Sibelius in a way. I know that sounds super <laughs> negative, but it's really not because it still sounds great, um, yeah. but it just doesn't sound... You can't hear that wealth of the tradition that they bring to it, um, to those particular sections of the music, that is. Yeah. There's one other thing regarding your um, regarding your compositional process. You yeah. 
have um, on the latest record, you've got two separate suites. Yes. And on the previous record, I think there was a suite as well. Yeah, there's two as well. Um, so that's four suites over the course of two records. Um, what is it about the suite structure that appeals to you? And also, like, is it... Do you create some sort of an outline in your mind before you even approach the the, yeah, the first? Yeah, absolutely. What appeals to me about the sweet structure is the logic of it. To be quite honest with you, I mm -hmm. I find that very attractive. I find the idea that you can use two or three things and compose four movements exciting and inspiring uh, as a way to work. And for sure, there's always an outline, a structural outline that I write before, and I try to compose within the sort of parameters of that structural outline. Um, and that was something that I learned through composition classes with um, Yaniv Nahum, uh, as yeah. well as um, others at the Conservatorium von Amsterdam, Barbara, Barbara Blay, um, uh, Hank Hausinger, and... Um, Johan Plomp, all of them emphasized all of these things. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really attracted to the logic of it uh, and the challenge as well. Oh. And how do the... So, um, when you have two suites on a record, like, a suite in and of itself is quite a statement. Like, how do they relate to each other in that sense? Like, is it is it just, I wrote this suite, I wrote that suite, now they're going to... It doesn't seem... Knowing you, it doesn't seem like that's where it would end. Um, what? No, actually, that is pretty... I mean, I, I first of all... For all my albums, I like there to be certain, I like there to be aesthetic similarities or structural similarities, let me put it that way. So I like the idea of always using the same album artist for a start. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of always trying to make it somehow politically motivated, although less so now. I like the idea of structurally there being two suites and interludes. Um, so for me, I just, it's, it's, it's almost like something that I'd like to be in the character of the music that I produce to have, to have that. Um, it's not that they're necessarily interrelated at all. Uh, often in the case of these two albums, yes, they happen to be interrelated. The one in both cases, one deals with questions of negotiating identity and the other deals with questions of history. Mm. And this is the case for both suites on both albums. Um, but I guess that that's because those two things are the predominant themes in my life and will continue to be the predominant themes in my life. So, and I always fluctuate between that depending on what is taking precedence in my personal life at the time. Sometimes I'm very preoccupied with existential questions of love and happiness and uh, <laughs> who am I and all of these things. And other times yeah. I'm more thinking about the history of South Africa and what we can do to make things better. Um, and generally I sort of switch between thinking about those two things yeah. and that's what I compose about. But then in the, um, this is another slightly cliched question, I suppose, but um, in the performance of the music then, if you're balancing like those different sides of things, like if you... At the time of composing, I mean, as far as I understood it, it took you months to compose this music. Yes. Um, and then trying to recreate those months worth of work and um, like collected emotion and experience. Um, later on down the road, like, you know, you're going to go and play this music in the BIM house now and it's supposed to represent a version of yourself that's like a year, two years, three years old. I don't know. Um, how do you conciliate those things? Well... That's another really great question, and it's a, something I was thinking about the past couple of days. Um, to me, the the songs, every time you perform them, I've performed Life and Death on the Other Side of the Dream in the Netherlands, I've performed it in Switzerland, I've performed it in South Africa, mm -hmm. and every time you perform those pieces, the performance and the audience and what you're doing at the time around the performance all of those things become one layer, one historical layer in the story of the song. Um, and so for me now, when I'm going to perform this music at the Bim House, it's me performing Life and Death on the Other Side of the Dream, but it's also me bringing my experience of having performed that music in a township in Johannesburg, of having performed that music in Basel, Switzerland, mm -hmm. um, and bringing those emotions to the song. And that, for me, the improvisational element becomes super important there. 
um, because your improvisations change depending on what you've been doing with your life, not only what you've been practicing, but how you've been living your life. So for me, the compositions, although they were written two years ago, the character of them changes as you perform them over and over again. And the context in which you perform them adds another historical layer to those compositions. So by the time I perform this in the Bim House, it's so multi-layered. Um, and the performance in the Bim House then adds another layer. And it's yeah. it's really fantastic for me to be able to do that, to be able to add all these layers of experience onto the composition and when I play it, to be cognizant of the fact that that's what's happened and to feel the song from that vantage point. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. That I, I don't think I ever heard somebody put it quite like that, but that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the, the cliched idea of like the pop star having to go and like sing the greats, like the old stuff that they did 20 years ago, I suppose then you're actually not no longer singing 20 years ago, you're singing 20 years of existence of the song, right? Yes, um, absolutely. Um, yeah, um, you mentioned in passing uh, the idea of using the same artist for your artwork. I, I wasn't aware that that was the case, but I suppose now it does make sense. Can you maybe talk about that? Because it seems like there is a something really quite striking about the aesthetics of your album covers. And Yeah, the artist's name is Mr. Fuzzy Slippers. <laughs> yeah, I did know <laughs> he's, that he's much. He's got quite a name. He's a genius. He's really... An incredibly, I hope he's listening, an incredibly frustrated, <laughs> frustrating guy because he's super disorganized. Okay. And every time I work with him, I'm always thinking to myself, man, I'm never going to work with this guy again. <laughs> but then he delivers and it's just always incredible what he does. I love his work and he understands exactly what I'm trying to communicate with my music and how to put that into art. And for me... I'm super old fashioned. So I think the album is an experience, like everything about it, how it looks, how it feels in your hand, the process of listening to it from start to end. Mm -hmm. So for me, the artwork and in the case of the first album, the liner notes are as much a part of the product as the music, the sonic element. Yeah. So, yeah. And so what do you, do you like, um, I take it that you come to him with an idea of what, like thematically it is but ne not necessarily aesthetically what it is or is it yeah no aesthetic I, I really leave that to him completely I just explain to him conceptually what I'm trying to do with the album send him some readings mm -hmm. and send him the music and then he listens to that and creates something on the basis of what he hears or, and reads so yeah cool <clears throat> um, so another thing that you have mentioned in passing and just before we started this conversation I was um well, before we started recording ourselves, um, I mentioned to you that I was aware that you were in Switzerland, but I wasn't really sure why or what it is you've been up to. But it seems like you've been doing some sort of a residency kind yeah. of a thing there. Yeah. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, it's great. I've been fortunate enough to, it sounds again, I hate these super fancy sounding things, um, <laughs> grandiose. But I've been fortunate enough to be artist in residence at the Musica Wohnhaus in the city of Basel. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's something that was sponsored by Pro Havetia, which is an arts and cultural organization from Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And basically I've been collaborating with a number of musicians there, most notably with a guitarist by the name of... My pronunciation of French names is horrible. And you're, you're <laughs> half right. French or you're from <laughs> France or whatever. You can speak French, so I'm sorry. But his name is uh, Théo Dubol. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is a fantastic guitarist who I met at the Montreux International Jazz Guitar Competition. And we decided to try and work together. So I got this grant from Provetia as well as this residency from the city of Basel mm -hmm. to live there for three months and earn a monthly salary and create. And we basically composed an album together, which mm -hmm. is going to be released, I think, in November this year. Okay. So, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, I look forward to hearing it. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe... You this is, um, again, a very vast topic, but um, you have um, relatively recently moved back to Johannesburg. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in what that has been like and what was the, like, a combination of, because it seems like that's very much related to the theme of the album. Yes. The idea of having left home in search of something that you believed you would find and then returning home not necessarily having found it 
um, or having found something else or um, what, what has it been like returning home? Does it feel like returning home? And it's been very difficult, very, very strange, like really weird. It's mm -hmm. really weird to live in a place for almost eight years and then to leave that place and go back to place that's meant to be home when you haven't lived in that home mm -hmm. for almost 12 years yeah. because I first moved to Pretoria which is not in Johannesburg and then I moved to Amsterdam um, and yeah the way that you describe my my sort of existence in Amsterdam and my reasons for coming here spot on completely and um, so moving back to Johannesburg was difficult um, first of all from a personal level to try and make sense of how and why this place is home and how and why Amsterdam is home and why it wasn't home. Mm -hmm. Because Amsterdam both was and wasn't home. And Johannesburg as well, both is and isn't home. Yeah. So trying to make sense of that has been really difficult. Um, also, I had a lot of personal connections in Amsterdam, friends and relationships that were very, very difficult to leave behind, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was very tough. Um and every time I come to Amsterdam, I just realize how how much how many emotional memories the city carries for me. So cycling past the conservatory or mm. cycling in Amsterdam East, all of these things have so many layers of history to them. So many things happen there for me. Yeah. And every time I cycle through there, I do it now as a visitor. And it feels very strange that at one point this place was home and these emotions were so present and close and now both of those things are no longer the case. But on the other hand, it's been really nice to be near my family. Mm -hmm. um, it's been really, really nice to teach at the conservatory and to feel like I'm contributing to building the scene in South Africa. Um, the weather is exponentially better in South Africa, as I'm sure. Yeah, that's a imagine. fairly common complaint. Uh, yeah, yeah. And of course, as much as I hate to admit it, I've been more successful in Europe at large since I moved back there simply because there is this element of this guy's coming from overseas. Therefore, mm. there's this greater attraction than if he's just <laughs> a postmaster student living in Amsterdam. You know? Yeah. So it's. No, that's yeah. an interesting point. And so um, regarding the idea of um, participating in building a scene um, in both Johannesburg and South Africa at large, um, how, what has that been like? Like, it seems to me like there is some, like there is somewhat of a rich tradition over there. I mean, obviously, like the recent passing of, uh, of Hugh Mescala is, is um, maybe the most obvious um, thing to point to or Abdullah Ibrahim, um, yeah. those kinds of, of people. But what, what is the modern like jazz scene over there like? It's very vibrant, to be honest with you. And there's a lot of stuff happening. Not all of it is very good, but there is for sure some good musicians, a lot of good musicians. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of young people who are asking I think that in general, young people in South Africa and young black people in particular are very, very concerned with trying to unpack black identity in post-apartheid South Africa. And in the case of music, this is especially the case. Mm -hmm. There's so many projects that are trying to deal with those sorts of issues and looking at innovative ways of creating hybrid cultural products to speak to some of those questions. So there's really, really a lot of that. And a lot of that is very, very influenced by what's happening now in America, but mainly people like Robert Glasper and Christian Scott. So basically people who are very conscious of their race yeah. and conscious of their roles as um, black cultural ambassadors. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that sort of uh, cross-Atlantic struggle, racial struggle, resonates very, very deeply with young black musicians in South Africa. Um, and so there's really a lot of that, like music that's very, very influenced harmonically by Robert Glasper and Christian Scott and mm -hmm. to a lesser degree, um, Gerald Clayton and guys like that. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a cool scene. It's, it's a lot more vibrant than it was when I left, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and it's grown a lot. 
primarily due to the emergence of a jazz club in Johannesburg called The Orbit, which recently in Downbeat was mentioned as one of the top 10 or something jazz clubs in the world or okay. something like that. Cool. Um, so there's that place and a whole load of festivals and it's a, it's a super nice scene to be mm-hmm. honest with you. Um, it's, it's a, it's a very, very nice scene, uh, very warm as well. Um, yeah, so it's it's an exciting time to be a young musician there for sure. Yeah, because I mean, I I seem to remember that at the time of your departure from here, there was some discussion of whether or not you were going to go to New York. Yeah, um, is that still something that's on the table? Um, you were talking about going to NYU, I think. Um, yeah, it was. It it is on the table. It's still an option. My sense is that. Studying right now is something that I would struggle to do, like studying in a, in a formal environment with mm-hmm. a teacher telling you to do X, Y, Z every week and having to do assignments and all. I think I would really struggle to do that now, to be honest. I would do it, but I think I would feel weird. Like mm-hmm. it would feel kind of horrible. Um, I think I'd be more interested in something like an artist diploma where you can go and get masterclasses and workshops and do whatever you want, basically. Yeah. Um, that to me would be something more interesting. So that's the one thing. And then the other thing is that I think that I'm just a little bit intimidated by <laughs> New York and what it represents, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. It's, it's a very, and I noticed it every time in Amsterdam when a, an American musician would come and give a masterclass or in South Africa when they would do that, I would feel a massive sort of inferior sense of inferiority being in the presence of these great musicians who really understand the culture and uh, yeah, okay. what am I trying to do and all of yeah. this. So. No, fair enough. Um, uh, but so I, I take it that um, there's a, um, that you're basically building from the standpoint that you're going to be based in Johannesburg for the foreseeable future and... Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, okay. I don't know yet. Uh, you don't need to commit problem. to anything on this <laughs> yeah. podcast right now. Yeah. Um, and uh, maybe as another side note, you, you mentioned your teaching. Um, yeah. How did that come about and what, what has that been like? Yeah, well, the teaching is actually the reason why I left. Uh, mm-hmm. The reason why I left the Netherlands is because it came up that there was an offer to teach guitar at the University of Bidvatisrand. And the university itself is the best university in South Africa, but the music school is very much in a process of transition and rebuilding. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the perfect time to be there because you you really have the opportunity to put your stamp on your particular department. In yeah. my case, it's the jazz guitar department yeah. as well as ensemble. Um, so I have complete license and complete liberty to put whatever syllabus I want in place and to try and mm. develop players. And um, of course, it's very challenging because the standard is quite low. Um but on the other hand, I think if it's it's healthy to view that sort of thing as a long-term project and as something, and I already noticed it with students of mine who are in first year and foundation year, which is the year before first year, mm-hmm. there's a marked difference between how they sound at the end of the year versus people who have been through the whole system and who have been there for four years. And yeah. that to me is very encouraging to be able to see that really marked difference between people were there before me in a way and people who have been there since I've been there. And of course, this is not to blow my own trumpet. It's simply taking systems that I learned um, in South Africa and in the Netherlands and applying them to those students. It's really not rocket science or something. Um, But it's just been really rewarding to to see that change and that difference. Yeah, great. yeah, but before we get towards the end of the of the show, I do like to ask people if there's a um, if there's something that you would like to recommend people check out that would not necessarily be music, but can be pretty much anything from a movie, a book, um, something along those lines. So yeah. you obviously are well read and uh, and all that. So <laughs> you probably have got something fun to recommend, right? Um. Yeah. So. I guess books for sure, a book called The Quiet Violence of Dreams, which is the the latest album that I wrote was very much based on my reading of that book. Okay. It's by a novelist by the name of Kay Selo Daker. He's a South African novelist who died at a very young age. He committed suicide. Okay. Um, and it's a, an absolutely genius book. It's very big, so you need time to read it, but it's yeah. incredible. And um, yeah, my favorite... Um, 
at least the book that I'm reading right now that I really enjoy is Zadie Smith's book, Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, a really great book. I think it's my favorite book of us so far. I've read On Beauty, White Teeth and Swing Time and they're also all great. Yeah. But I would say if I had to recommend one, it would be Northwest. Um, yeah, movies, that, there's so many again. Um <laughs> The last movie that I watched that I really, really enjoyed is a movie called Anna Melissa by Charlie Kaufman. Oh, yeah. Um, which I think All is stop motion animation. Exactly. It yeah. was robbed of the Oscar animation, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> very much deserved it. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, um, that's what I would recommend. Yeah. I cool. Um, and maybe finally, is there any stuff that you've been up to as a sideman that you want to mention? I mean, I, I don't know if you have time for that, given your busy schedule, but... Um, yeah, well, it's not so much that I don't have time for it. It's more that I don't really get asked for my stuff as a sideman. But it, of course, in South Africa, the the issue is a lot of the time I'm not there. So people would phone me and say, do you want to do this thing? And I, yes, I'd love to, but unfortunately I'm yeah, in Basel okay. or unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I worked recently with a trumpet player by the name of Amandla Mlangeni, South mm-hmm. African trumpet player. We recorded something together. That's his own project that he's going to release. Okay. Um, and yeah, of course, in the Netherlands, a project called Aurelio Project, which is a kind of a passion project of mine because it's another one of these things where it started out being quite bad. And they also know that I have this opinion of it. <laughs> and over time, it just developed into something really remarkable. The last album we released was beautiful with strings and okay. Martin Ochenaus played on it and um, hopefully we're going to do something together I think next year or something like that mm-hmm. um, so yeah those as a sideman those are the two things that stand out and then of course in South Africa I do a lot of small stuff but nothing worth like stuff where you play in a jazz club for one gig or yeah, a sure. jam session or something nothing worth mentioning per se so yeah cool uh, Fuma Thanks again for being here and doing this. Uh, yeah, thank it's, you. It's been a lot of fun. And um, of course, I always tell people, but um, if you have more stuff that you want to mention and promote and talk about in the future, which I'm sure you will, yeah. hopefully we can have you back. Yeah, perfect. Awesome. Cool. Thanks. Once again, that was guitarist Vuma Levine. If you go to samthemoment.com, you'll find show notes and links to his website where you'll be able to buy his records and also find details about any upcoming shows he may have. I would like to thank my fellow members of K-True for providing the intro and outro music that you're hearing right now. As always, I appreciate any feedback you may have, so please contact me with any questions or comments. You can do that on Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can do it via the sound of the moment page on facebook and you can also email me directly at pat at sound of the moment.com if that's easier for you please add the show to your rss feed or subscribe in itunes podbean stitcher wherever you get your podcasts and while you're there give the show a favorable review or rating that really does help boost the visibility of the show and hopefully gets more people to listen to it And as usual, if you know anybody who might be interested in this kind of show, might want to listen to it, then um, I will be infinitely grateful if you would let them know about it. That's that's very helpful. Now, to finish the show, we are going to hear some more music from Wilma Levine. This track is called Rebirth, and it is also on his latest record, Life and Death on the Other Side of the Dream. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Sound of the Moment. Thank you.